0: St. Peter's Church on 54th and Lex in New York City. This is 54th and Text. This week we're talking about Exodus in the New Testament. Where does it show up and why is it there? If you ever read the Bible with a study Bible or an annotated Bible, you'll probably get footnotes that tell you important historical notes, theological ideas. And references to other biblical texts. Well, if you take all of those biblical texts together, if you take all the ones from the New Testament and then count up the ones from the Old Testament, you'll find that the New Testament writers talk about the Old Testament a lot. And if you rank all those books, here's what you get. The most common book is Isaiah, with some 400 references in the New Testament. Number two is the Psalms, with 370. And coming in at number three is Exodus, with a little over 200. So how does Exodus show up? And perhaps more importantly, why does it show up so often? To start, let's look at the Gospel of Matthew. The real meat of the Gospel of Matthew is built around five discourses, or speeches. Jesus gives these speeches that include the Sermon on the Mount, the Missionary Discourse, the Parabolic Discourse, the Discourse on the Church, and the Discourse on the End Times. And those five discourses reflect the Torah, which is traditionally ascribed to Moses. The fact that Jesus gives five major teachings in Matthew's Gospel is supposed to raise ideas that Jesus is like Moses, and that he teaches and leads with authority. Matthew plays a lot with comparisons between Moses and Jesus, about how Moses and Jesus are alike or not alike. The most obvious way that Matthew does this is by Jesus taking the law from Exodus and taking it to a new level. So as an example here, let's look at Matthew 19. This is the story of a man who comes to be a disciple of Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus what he needs to do. And Jesus lists off some of the Ten Commandments. And the man says that he does all of those. And so Jesus says that if he can do all of those, then he should sell everything he owns and give the money to the poor. And then the man leaves. What Matthew does in his gospel isn't just taking the ideas about the law from Exodus. It's following the trajectory of the law and taking it to its logical conclusion. So not only should you not steal your neighbor's goods or covet them, but you should sell your own goods for the benefit of your neighbor. It takes the law and the commandments and in some ways makes them virtually impossible. Jesus is like Moses in that he teaches and gives law, but it's a new law, that it doesn't just list prohibitions but gets to the real heart or scope of the matter. Matthew also uses Exodus images not only to draw comparisons between Jesus and Moses but also between Jesus and Israel. In Matthew's telling of Jesus's birth, Jesus's family has to escape to Egypt to get away from King Herod who's killing children. So two big connections to Exodus here. First, by killing male children, Matthew presents King Herod as a kind of modern-day pharaoh. Second, Jesus has to come back out of Egypt. This coming out of Egypt is reminiscent of the prophet Hosea, who emphasized Israel's self-understanding as being called out of Egypt. In Jesus being called out of Egypt, Matthew makes Jesus not just Moses, but into a new Israel. So let's move from Matthew into the Gospel of John. Whereas Matthew builds his theology around five main discourses, John builds his around signs. Jesus performs a miracle, or as John calls it, a sign. And then there's a teaching and an I am saying. And some of these I am sayings play off ideas from Exodus. So, for example, in John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And what's important about the bread of life is that you only have to eat it once come and never be hungry. Part of what John is doing here is playing off the idea of manna from heaven, from Exodus 16. Jesus is like manna in that he fulfills your hunger, but instead of going out every day, Jesus fills you forever. For another example, in John 7, Jesus says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. The move here is from manna from heaven to water from the rock. Jesus presents himself as the water that satisfies forever. The true rock, so to speak. For another example, in John 8, Jesus talks about himself as the light of the world, and says that all who follow him will never walk in darkness. The parallel here is from Exodus 13, in which God leads the Israelites through the desert as a pillar of fire. According to John, Jesus isn't just the light of Israel. Jesus is the light of the whole world. It's a broadening and deepening of the scope of the Exodus motif. The clearest example of this broadening and deepening comes in John 8, when Jesus tells the disciples that they will be free if they remain in truth. And the disciples say, well, we're descendants of Israel, we're Jews, so aren't we already free? Isn't that what the Exodus is all about? And Jesus gives them a deeper understanding of freedom, that even though they are free from the Egyptians, they are still slaves to the law. So this broadening and deepening again. This Exodus language gets picked up in the early church as well, especially with the Apostle Paul. Paul reads the Hebrew Bible with a tool called typological exegesis. Typological exegesis is a way of reading the Hebrew Bible so that newer events are foreshadowed by older events. So for example, when Paul says that the Israelites all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's using an event in the past to make sense out of a newer event. In this case, he's using the water from the rock from Exodus 17 as a foreshadowing or a prototype for the true rock, which was Christ. This method of typological exegesis isn't used much today. One of the reasons why is that it creates a problem with how we understand the relationship between Jews and Christians. This kind of reading can lead you into thinking that old things have been replaced. Not just that there are similarities, but that they've been replaced or gotten rid of. The big word for that is supersessionism. As Christians, we understand the promises of God as permanent, as always ongoing. The promises of God are never replaced or lessened. They are always in effect. So why is all of this important? Well, if you've listened to any of our other episodes, you've noticed a common theme, which is how Exodus has formed Jewish identity. And by reading through the New Testament, we can see ways in which the Exodus has been formative for Christians. One of the challenges for the gospel writers was how to write about Jesus, how to communicate ideas about Jesus to other people. And one thing they did was they used language and stories and images that people already knew. Which is exactly why, if we want to understand what the Gospels are trying to tell us about Jesus, we need to understand what they thought about Exodus, about what Exodus teaches us about humanity, about freedom, and about God. Thanks for listening. Our theme music is Opportunity Walks by Kevin MacLeod used under a Creative Commons 3.0 license.